Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hey, it's Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics. This is our first weekly episode. We wanted to have more conversations with people who are impacting or being impacted by Canadian politics. To that end, today we take you to the United Nations, one of the main theaters of the global response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Canada's guy there is Bob Ray, former Ontario Premier, former Liberal leader and MP of Toronto Centre, and now Canada's UN Permanent Representative, or PR. For the past several weeks, Bob Ray has been Canada's voice on the international stage. Canada's history and our proud association with all the people of Eastern Europe have led us to this point. We are partners in peace. We are partners in the quest for security and prosperity, and partners in the struggle for a world bound together by peaceful, friendly relations among nations and a common commitment to democracy and the rule of law. The day this episode comes out, the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, will be speaking to our parliament in a special session since our parliament doesn't actually sit again until March 21st. President Zelensky has been doing a virtual speaking tour of many parliaments in the West to rally any support he can get for Ukrainian efforts to hold off the Russian invasion. Meanwhile, European leaders have denied fast-tracking Ukraine's membership into the European Union, but are considering bringing them into the fold somehow. We've talked about this a lot on the backbench. What is Canada's role in this ever-changing world? What should it be? And how do conversations on the international stage impact our decisions here at home? So I asked Bob Ray. He's been using some of the strongest language among Canadian leaders about this conflict. Over the weekend, he tweeted... Quote, the point is not just that Ukraine and the West are working together, that NATO is united. The point is that Putin must be defeated. Losing with dignity and integrity can't happen. The consequences of that are too serious. Those are very strong words, and I tried to understand Barbary's perspective and influence at home and abroad. Let's get into it. Hello. Hi, Bob. It's Fatima. How are you? Hey, Fatima. How are you? I'm good. Are you in New York? No. Today I'm in Ottawa. Amazing. Have you been traveling a lot? No. I've been staying put in New York a lot. Uh, <laughs> that makes sense. It's <laughs> been the center of the the epicenter of my activities over the last month or so. It's been a while since we chatted, so thank you for doing this. Pleasure. So I wonder if I could start by asking you. To walk us through what's happened at the 
after the Security Council called an emergency special session on Ukraine at the General Assembly. Can you just describe, like, the first moment this hit the United Nations? Uh, Well, I think it's complicated uh, in the sense that there's many different sources of of information and, and chat. All the PRs, as we call ourselves, um, are on WhatsApp. So WhatsApp is sort of the one of the lines of communication that you know lights up, <laughs> lights up very early in the morning and and uh, closes off very very late at night. So in a country like Canada, we're not on the Security Council, as you as you may know. Mm-hmm. So as we're not on the Security Council, what happens is uh, that uh, we hear from others uh, and we we have groups of friends that we talk to who. Uh, we share information with. And uh, normally what happens as well is that we have the two or three or four countries that we're close to that are on the Security Council. Uh, usually the, the non-permanent members uh, are the people that uh, we, we kind of have a regular connection with and a debrief with as time goes on. Also, you should know that there's been a background conversation uh, about what's been happening in eastern Ukraine for uh, many, many years, since the Crimean crisis and and even before. Uh, And that leads to a sharing of information with people on the Secretariat, with uh, other sources about uh, what what is happening and what is the significance of the the buildup. So that's sort of the, what I would call, I guess, a a bit about the architecture of discussion. (laughs) Well, can I ask, so you you learned about this through one of the WhatsApp messages or through, you know, the news that you receive and and follow. Was the United Nations or or were you uh, caught by surprise when this all happened? No, um, I think it was kind of weird, actually. There was this weird uh, event that happened where the the Security Council was meeting in uh, at night uh, to continue the discussions about what what more might or should be done. Uh, and it was clear that the Russian ambassador who was, who was chairing the, the meeting had no idea that Putin was about to uh, authorize the, uh, the invasion. What gave you that impression? Uh, he was taken aback. Uh, everybody that was there said that you know he 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 didn't he didn't know that as he was as he was speaking about what more could be done to achieve peace that uh, his boss was ordering an invasion uh, and this is not the you know not the only time this happens i mean the japanese had an official delegation in washington dc in 1941 when uh when pearl harbor happened Mm. Now, did they know? No one knows. They left very quickly after that. There's lots of parallels for this, but it it was a it it was a a, an unusual (laughs) circumstance. But it's also a reflection that uh, when you're dealing with governments like uh, like the Russian government, um, clearly evidence of the isolation of Mr. Putin. Uh, and he was going to make the call. When he made the call, nobody would know when it would be, and that's what he did. Mm. This this brings up an interesting point about, you know, the relationship between someone in your position and the government um, and the country that you represent. And I wondered, can you describe for us what the relationship is like between you and uh, the prime minister's office right now? Are you in constant contact? Are you advising them? Are they instructing you? What is the relationship there? 
Um, well, it, it's it's actually, of course, I'm in constant contact both with the PMO as well as with uh, my my department, the Foreign Affairs Department, mm-hmm. and with officials there, and also with people in the minister's office. Um, again, um, every <laughs> conceivable line of communication is there uh, in a variety of ways. We talk to each other all the time. That's normal. That's what you would expect to happen. Within parameters that are set by government policy, I, uh, I'm i encouraged to do the communications that I do. Are you able to share what kind of advice you're giving them or what you're seeing at the United Nations that you're relaying to them that, that would make it pertinent for, for their policies and their approach in this crisis? It's exactly what you would expect. My private advice is is not much different from what I had to say in public. I mean, I, I, I think... Um, uh, and the prime minister has expressed that as well when in his um, in his trip to that he's taking with a number of cabinet ministers to Eastern Europe. It's an ongoing um, an ongoing dialogue with with them and with other countries mm-hmm. about uh, what can uh, be done, what more should be done. Uh, and I communicate that as directly with with governments as I possibly can. Understanding, of course, that I'm not, I'm not actually a decision maker in the sense of I don't, <laughs> I don't sit around the cabinet table, uh, and so it's it's important for <laughs> for me and for everyone else to understand that there are limits to <laughs> to what I can do other than give advice. That's what I do. I give advice to my government and I give advice to my colleagues here at the UN. Uh, assessments as to what's going on. and It's not any different than, as I said, what you, you see in public is is what I do. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're now two, over two weeks into this uh, conflict. What are you seeing now that, like, you know, what's the advice that you're giving to your colleagues at the UN and the government uh, based on how the situation is unfolding thus far and, and what you're seeing ahead with your expertise? Well, I think the I mean, I think a couple of things. I mean, again, this is not particularly dramatic or original with uh, with me, but I think what we're seeing is is a few things. One is uh, the Russian war objectives have not changed. They're not signaling uh, in any in any consistent way uh, a shift in in their objective. They're lying a lot, uh, and they they lie a ton. Uh, so a whole lot of what they tell you is just nonsense and and it, it, it's 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 a constant reminder of uh you know the best books you can read about what <laughs> what's going on in the world today are written by george orwell like you just got to read orwell <laughs> to kind of understand this is a the, the russian government is a lying machine and so all of its public statements have to be read in that context mm-hmm. and i think it's hard for people to sometimes accept that they'll say well you know, the, this guy said this, the foreign minister said that. And, and I said, the foreign minister is lying. Like, it, why are we spending a lot of time giving him credit for something? He spent uh, weeks and months before the invasion telling us the invasion wasn't going to happen. So why would we believe him? And I think, you know, this is just a side point, but my, my tendency to say things like that uh, make me a little different from a number of, of, <laughs> of my diplomatic colleagues. Well, I was going to ask, like, are you getting instructions from the government to say the things that you're saying or to take the direction no. that you're taking, or is this all you? This is, no, I'm not getting instructions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I'm 
I'm getting, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm being allowed to say things as emphatically as I do. Uh, and, and, you know, if there's a, if, as I said, within the, within, within the framework of, of government policies. Uh, you know, Bob, uh, over the years, I've heard a number of government ministers in Canada, you know, claim that Canada's losing clout on the world stage, especially after how we handled Afghanistan last year. And this is the most I've seen Canada step up in an international conflict in a long time. Why do you think that's the case? Why do you think Canada has stepped up so forcefully in its response to um, the Russian invasion in Ukraine? Um, I think it's pretty fundamental to our uh, to our position as to who we are uh, at the UN and and uh, in NATO and. Uh, in our other you know, relationships with European countries, you know, at the UN, we we have been able to be as strong as we have been uh, because what is happening is is a classic, <laughs> a horribly classic breach of of all the rules. Uh, the Russians have thrown out the rule book, mm. um, and that's what makes this so critically important uh, that we have to deal with it. My follow-up to that was going to be, do you think our action, our response to Ukraine has anything to do with helping Canada get a seat at the Security Council? No, nothing. That's not likely to happen for a very long time for a whole variety of reasons, but basically because of the way the UN election system works. No, this has nothing to do with the Security Council. And I, I think one of the things that's happened, I would argue, is that um, – the dysfunction of the Security Council has been made very clear to everybody. Mm. The Security Council is not a functioning unit. The fact of the matter is, is that the, the, the Russians vetoed <laughs> the resolution that criticized Russia while they were chairing a meeting. I mean, it's just nuts, right? You, you chair a meeting and then you exercise. I mean, it's it's just a terrible abuse of power and abuse of the veto. So I think that's created a different dynamic uh, around uh, people looking at the Security Council, Security Council reform. Again, Canada has been very active in that battle and very active in that conversation. So that's a that's a very different situation. Can you expand on this? Like, how have we been active on that? Well, we're part of a group of countries that are interested in Security Council reform, uh, making the council work better, more transparently, uh, more democratically, more accountably. Uh, we'd like to get rid of the veto altogether. That's obviously a challenge because there are five countries that have vetoes and they can veto any change. So we, we know the rules of the game. But we're working hard with other countries to say uh, the idea that you can use your veto without any reference to the law or to the charter or to anything else, just, just exercise your veto any way you want because you happen to be a permanent member of the United Nations is is terrible. It's it's a ter terrible abuse of power in the context of an organization that is supposed to be based on the rule of law. Mm. And the principle of the rule of law is uh, the law is always there. It's always guiding your conduct. And it's clear that in this case, uh, there was no guidance of anybody's conduct except for the whim of one person, Vladimir Putin. 
you really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You know, uh, Bob, last time we talked, which was several years ago, uh, it was about the Rohingya refugee crisis, and, and you were serving sort of as an ambassador for Canada there. There's been a lot of talk about the differing responses to refugee crises around the world without, you know, diminishing the need for response uh, here in Ukraine. But from your perspective, uh, how does the UN's response to Ukrainian refugees and Rohingya refugees compare? That's a good question. Um, I think <clears throat> I think I've been very um, troubled um, over the years by how we respond to different crises. Uh, troubled in the sense of where do the cameras go? Um, where can you get access? How do you get information? Uh, why is this issue more important than another issue? And there are there are a lot of explanations about geography. Um, as I said, where cameras can go, well, now cameras can go anywhere because of social media, but how does social media, uh, you know, able to I impact and influence um, our responses? And, you know, what is the critical geography that's at stake? And uh, what what else might be at stake? Here you have a situation that's happening uh, in Eastern Europe. It's happening next door to Russia. And Uh, the, the the impacts are are immediate and clear, and the consequences and costs of what is happening are immediate and clear. Some disputes happen in places that are more remote, that are ro more remote from major media centers, major power centers, major focuses of interest that say this is of great strategic interest to us or not. And there are different responses. Um One of the purposes of the United Nations is to try to even that out. Uh, that is to say, make sure that every we're paying attention to all these conflicts. That there is no conflict that is that is more important than another, other than on a scale of how serious it is and and how drastic it is. Uh, but I think that there's a lot of um, uh, even during, you know all through this this conversation and crisis and dialogue and decision making about Ukraine there i've had many meetings with with other uh with people about other situations meetings about Myanmar and and the Rohingya meetings about Afghanistan uh, meetings about Yemen meetings about what's happening in in uh, other other theaters of conflict if you like uh and always there's a sense in those conversations of how do we get our issue in the mix Uh, and I, I keep saying, by doing what you're doing, and also by insisting that all the UN agencies have to pay attention to all the conflicts. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, there is, a, there is of course, um, everyone in media, not to be, I, I never, you never, <laughs> I don't like to be say too much about the media because I don't want to be seen as complaining about the media. It's not that. I think it's just that. The media, we have trouble focusing on more than one thing at a time. And you know as well as I do that some things in the media get to the front of the page and other things don't get to the front of the page. And that's that's not good, and, and that's something we have to pay attention to. But the question of why some crises matter more than others is is, is complicated. 
Um, but it's also true to say that this will always be the case that there will be arguments about why are we paying attention to this and not about that. I've learned more about what is called whataboutism at the UN than in any other place I've ever been. Because every time you mention something, somebody from another country will say, well, what about me? What about my situation? What about my crisis? You're not paying attention to this. And you have to say, yeah, I'm paying attention to it, but I'm actually paying attention to this one first because it's the most immediate and has the most potential for uh, serious, serious consequences. If Russia was not a nuclear power, and if their leader had not, you know, and, and, and their, their leader has said, I am authorizing a heightened nuclear alert, mm. <laughs> that's going to get attention. Why? Because the consequences of that are so catastrophic. Yeah, I mean, I think throughout this conversation, we've talked a little bit about the challenges and limitations that uh, an institution like the United Nations faces. And I have thought about this a lot, too, over the last two weeks uh, as a former model UN kid and, and someone who thinks deeply about international relations. Um, but I wonder, is there a way for that institution, you know, who believes so strongly in democratic values and international rules-based order to become stronger after a crisis like this? And, you know, deal with every conflict fairly and equally and have a stronger response, the kind that we've seen in Ukraine? Yes, I think it can. I mean, I think it will have that effect uh, on certainly people working inside the institution. And then there are a, a group of countries like Canada who believe very strongly in what the institution is trying to do and therefore are, you know, we are going to be contributing with, together with others a conversation about well how do we how do we move this forward in a consistent uh in a consistent way how do we how do we up our game knowing that the great powers uh, the united states and 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 uh and, and and all the other permanent members um and many other countries that are uh, great or aspiring to be great um have a different view of the un um and they they don't attach as much value to it as we do, because we rely that much more strongly on the multilateral system. Mm -hmm. And the reason we rely on the multilateral system is because we're a middle power. Mm -hmm. And if we didn't have a strong rules-based order, uh, we'd be worse off. And because we don't have a system as strong as we'd like it to be, we are worse off. And, oh, by the way, so is the rest of the world. So are a lot of countries. Bob, I know you're using the collective we um, to explain Canada's approach, but personally, as someone who's been at the United Nations for so long, who's dealt with multiple uh, international conflicts, what have you learned in the past two weeks and, and what are what are the challenges ahead for you? I think the, the continuing challenge that I, that I feel in my life all the time is um, uh, some, some good and some not so good. One good is I, I actually can help in situations where you might say, well, what can I do? And you sort of say, well, now I'm in a position where I can actually do some things. I can talk to people. I can frame arguments. I can, I can describe situations in ways that can move things a bit. And, and uh, the longer I'm allowed to stay, the more, contacts the more people the more persuasive i can i can be at a personal level and, and don't worry it's not going to my head i was just saying <laughs> this is something i can do and i, and I can help but it, it, 
And it's, and it is that there's nothing better in life than to feel you've got a purpose and that you're making a constructive contribution and, and it feels good. I mean, it's a nice way to feel. Um, the tougher part is not just what we say, but also what we do. How much do we actually contribute? And I say we, I mean my country, Canada, and other other governments that that think like Canada and work like Canada. And so the continuing challenge is to make sure that what we do matches the, the words that we speak. And this is not novel to the situation, but it's very true. People, there's there's always this gap between what I call the dialogue of words and the dialogue of deeds. Mm. <laughs> and if the deeds don't match the words, it's frustrating for the people who are hearing you because they know you're, you're, you're saying things that they agree with, but they're, they don't see the action that follows it. And that's always a challenge. Well, I know the United Nations has often been criticized for, for being more rhetoric over action. Do you think after this conflict, it'll be stronger or weaker? Well, I think the action, the collective actions have been stronger um, by a number of countries, not, you know, that it's the nation states that make these determinations, not the institution itself so much. The institution is act- itself is actually not that big. And I think people often forget that. They think the United Nations, you know, when people say the United Nations is a is a big world government and you say, no, actually. Actually, it's 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 more like a municipal government. <laughs> it's not a big institution. The secretariat budget is smaller than the budget of the city of Toronto. So it's really the question of of the institution itself, mm-hmm. how it can improve, how it functions. But it's also what can member states do to make a bigger difference. Okay. And Bob, I've got one last question for you. Are we heading to an inevitable conflict where, you know, countries like Canada will get involved militarily? Like, is this heading to an all-out war, do you think? Oh, I can't speculate on that. I think I think it's really hard to speculate on that. I think what we know is it's a very uncertain, we're living in a very uncertain time. And whenever you, you're in a war, it's easier to start a war than it is to stop a war. Mm-hmm. And it's not impossible for wars to escalate and for people doing things without fully understanding the consequences of what they're doing and that's all very serious that's something we have to we have to engage with mm-hmm. well, bob thank you so much i always learn a lot when i speak to you and i am very very grateful that you gave us this time thank you good to talk to you take care bob take care bye That was The Backbench. That was our first weekly episode. If you have any questions, concerns, rants, thoughts after hearing that, let us know. You can email us backbench at candleland.com. We're also on Twitter at BackbenchCast. And if you're someone who's impacting or being impacted by Canadian politics, please get in touch. We want to have as many conversations as we can to put people back in politics. I'm Fatma Sayed, and you can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayed. This episode was produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Tristan Capacayone. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. Thank you so much for listening. See y'all next week.
Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.